Amen. Thanks, Alex. How are we this morning? All right, some muted, muted woohoos. Is it the cold weather? Is it the chance of snow? I'll tell you, nothing will delight me more than looking through those back doors and seeing snowfall here in, here in 30 minutes or so, as it's, as it's said. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Be closing this out with verses 10 through 23. Philippians 4, 10 through 23. It's page 770 in my Bible, so use that as you will. While you're turning there, I was, uh, this week I was just reading again about something that we're all pretty familiar with, dominates the news cycles. Uh, maybe some of you guys have experienced some part of this yourselves, but uh, it's what's being referred to as the Great Resignation, right? And so I was reading this Harvard Business Review article and, and uh, had this interesting statistic in here, and actually I saw an updated version of it just last night with some new statistics there. But according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 10.9 million Americans quit their jobs between April and July of 2021. Four million in July alone. And the new, uh, new statistic that made its way into this article, the updated version last night, was that actually we've passed that record for one 30-day period and 4.4 more million Americans quit their job in September of this year. And economists in this article were just trying to understand, like, what's the reason behind this? What's driving this, this big movement away? What's driving these massive changes? And really, a lot of people are trying to understand this phenomenon because it's mostly these mid-career people, people with five, seven, ten years of experience driving this massive exodus from the workforce or, or certain industries into other industries looking for better pay, better hours, more flexibility, the ability to work from home in your pajamas, right, as a lot of people got used to. And I think that's the positive aspect that these people, all these uh, some 15, 16 million odd people uh, that we've seen just over the course of about half of this year, six months out of this year, have quit their jobs. That's the positive angle, that they're finding these better jobs, these better uh, benefits, this better working environment, better balance in their life. But I think another way of considering this is that these 15 or 16 million people were experiencing such disillusionment and burnout in the workplace that they were willing to make drastic changes like these in mass. And the reason I bring this up is because while I think that this time we live in is obviously unique, I think that the great resignation in some sense is not so unique. In fact, I would say it this way, it's just a chapter in a book that's being, been being written since the dawn of humanity, and that's the story of people trying to find happiness. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century mathematician, philosopher, and theologian, and guy you want at all of your parties for those reasons, said this, all men seek happiness, this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire attended with different view. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who would hang themselves." 
And I think the reason I thought of this and thought of this article, remembered this, this quote from Blaise Pascal, because I think in our, our passage today, as Paul is wrapping up this letter to the Philippians and thanking them for their financial support of his ministry, it, it, as he's doing this, he drops this massive idea and massive truth that he somehow found the answer to the question that all of mankind has been asking for all of history, which is, how can I be happy? And according to Paul, he says, pretty sly, he says, despite the ups and downs and despite the hardships that I have faced in my life and in my ministry, I have found the secret to contentment. Let's read these verses together. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I'm seeking or speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. That secret is this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in, in, uh, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and, and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There's a lot that I think that we can unpack, a lot of directions that I think we could go. But this morning, I really want to hone in on on what Paul sets up in these first few verses here at the beginning. And I want to highlight this big truth that we see in this passage, that we experience contentment through Jesus alone. We experience contentment through Jesus alone. So I want to just give you a roadmap of this morning. First thing we'll look at is that contentment can't be found in our circumstances. Secondly, contentment can't be achieved by self-sufficiency. And then finally, as we build to this truth, contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. So let's get into it. Uh, For some context, I want to give you an idea of why approach the passage this way. Why kind of have this ascending structure here as we build to this big truth that contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. Now, as I mentioned already, towards the end of this letter, Paul's wrapping up and addressing some final matters, and he's giving his encouragements and thanks to the Philippians because it looks like they have uh, entered into some kind of partnership with him of financial support. But right in the middle of all of these things, when he's speaking about his financial need and, and what God is doing in his life, he drops this incredible idea about finding contentment in Christ, and it's an idea that I think He did to subvert their expectations. You see, I think Paul knows what he's doing. 
Because I don't think it's, you know, I think it's all people want to understand what it means to be happy, what it means to be content. But if you're familiar with the Greeks and their philosophy, you'll know that they were particularly interested in the answer to this question. Many of these philosophies pointed to the end of what does it look like for mankind to experience flourishing and happiness and contentment. But Paul, rather than giving them a new philosophy for how to find it, he actually tells them that the answer is not in themselves. The answer is not in the world around them or their experience of them or of it. Not in anything that they can do. Instead, true contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. Now, here's what I think it's important that we understand this. Paul has in mind, and he's speaking to a people that are different than us and in a very different world than us today, but he is somehow speaking to the same desire of contentment and happiness that all of us have. And I know this in the room right now, that your heart uh, kind of leaps and your ears prick up at the idea of like happiness, contentment. I'd like to find that. And Paul is somehow through, through this, some a couple thousand odd years later, we see that Paul is speaking to the same desire desire of contentment that we have, but I think also somehow he's speaking against the same kind of harmful ideologies about happiness and contentment that are at work in our world today. Somehow in God's providence, Paul seems to hit right at the heart of these Western ideals of prosperity and independence, of becoming something and experiencing the world in this certain way, of finding happiness in our circumstances, finding happiness within ourselves. And here's why I think that's important. Because this passage invites us to find a way of contentment in Jesus, but there's some rewiring that needs to happen in our minds to get there. Baked into and hardwired into our minds is a way of thinking about and a way of pursuing happiness and contentment that Paul says here just isn't going to work. And I'll say this kind of as a premise statement for this morning. If we are to truly experience contentment in Jesus, what we need is a biblical, countercultural theology and pursuit of contentment. I'll say that again. If we are to truly experience contentment in Jesus, what we need is a biblical, countercultural theology and pursuit of contentment. So this morning, just as Paul does, I think, here in this passage, we w- I want to unpack two false ideologies about contentment and then show how contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. The first false ideology is here. Contentment can't be found in our circumstances. Contentment can't be found in our circumstances. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. It says this. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Two different experiences. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
So as I mentioned before, in verse 10, Paul is speaking to some type of history of financial relationship with the Philippians. And, and though there was some period of time, it looks like, where they weren't supporting him, they were the kind of people, the kind of brothers and sisters that really wanted to lock arms with him. And they were looking for the opportunities to get behind and support his ministry when he needed it. But unlike your typical support raising pitch, anybody ever done some fundraising for something, maybe ministry or something else? A couple hands around the room. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is a great tactic to go with, uh, but unlike your typical financial support pitch, Paul doesn't speak about his need at all. Instead, he speaks about it wholly and differently. The way he speaks about it, he says in verse 12, as he, or 11 and 12, he says, hey, whether or not my needs are met, I've learned to be content. I found the secret. Again, not great advice for a support-raising pitch, but there's an incredible truth beneath all of these things, and that's this. Paul is essentially telling us that contentment does not come from circumstances. These two things don't relate. In fact, what Paul speaks about is a contentment that transcends circumstances, a contentment that doesn't change regardless of how our circumstances might, regardless of whether we are brought low or whether we are abounding in any and every circumstances, we can be content. So what does it mean practically for us? Well, here's what I would say. If this is true, that contentment transcends circumstances and contentment can't be found in our circumstances, if this is true, let me turn this into a positive by way of saying something negative, you won't find contentment by changing or improving your circumstances in life. You won't find happiness, joy, fulfillment, lasting contentment from changing or improving the circumstances of your life. And here's why that's important. We tend to believe that if I, that I can be content if I just find I can find happiness if I can just have this or change this or fix or improve this aspect of my life or my circumstances. If I could just get this bigger house, if I could just get my kids in this better school, if I could just get that promotion at work, if I could just find the right person to love and marry, if I could just get past this sickness and so on and so forth, we are conditioned to believe that if we are not presently content, content then we can somehow change and manipulate our circumstances to get us there. That's the way we think about the world. There's a lot of tactics that we use to try to do this. For one, we try to mitigate our problems. Try to mitigate, lessen our problems. You know, we might say that we understand that there's, you know, as Christians, we'll play the, the pious attitude of saying, hey, listen, you know, I know that true happiness is not here in anything in the world, but if we're honest, our lives often say exactly the opposite. I mean, just think about that and let it sit uncomfortably with you. That often our lives can be summarized by doing improvement and maintenance work to our circumstances. We look for these kind of jobs to live in this kind of neighborhood, to go get our kids in this kind of school, to get these kind of degrees, to find this kind of station in life. The entirety of our goals, the trajectory, direction for our life, our imagination is filled with longing, thinking about how we can get there, how we can best get our circumstances aligned just right. And the problem, I would say, 
is that all of this creates a false hope of security. Our tactics might work for a little while until things get out of our control, and often we find ourselves just as discontent and just as unhappy as we ever were. A good job cannot make your kid healthy. A better house cannot make you feel satisfied. Enough money can't buy you love, can't buy you a better marriage. We find our contentment by these means, but they're so easily extinguishable. So sometimes we try to mitigate our problems. We try to manipulate those circumstances around us. And and if we can't get those circumstances just right, we are often to take this road instead. And that's this kind of mind over matter approach, just being unbothered by the circumstances around us. We try to maximize our enjoyment of the things that make us happy so that we can crowd out the misery in our lives. We try to mentally overcome the things that steal our joy. And the problem with this false hope in positive thinking is that eventually reality comes knocking on the door, does it not? And lastly, if we can't control our circumstances and we can't find it in our minds to overcome them, we convince ourselves this last-ditch effort that the grass must be greener on the other side. You know, with this approach to changing our circumstances, we just convince ourselves that some future destination in our lives will offer us some better environment to flourish. That we will finally be content, we'll finally be happy once we are out of our present situation and into another. And the problem, I would say, with this false hope of some future version of your life that will be better is this. What if it isn't? What if it isn't? What if contentment isn't there and you spend your entire life chasing after something that you just never find? My point in sharing these things and talking about these tactics and the way that this way of thinking about happiness and contentment just pervade our minds and pervade our lives is because we need rescue from that. We need to see clearly from God's word. We need a spirit-enabled vision to understand that none of these tactics work. And why would they? If the Bible teaches us that true contentment is decidedly not circumstantial, then why thinking changing our circumstances will have any effect at all? If we are to experience contentment in Christ, we have to recognize that it isn't going to be found here. It isn't going to be found with doing maintenance or improvement work in our lives. And so I'll just ask you this question right now as a way of checkpoints along the way to the better truth is that you? Is that you? I mean, I, I, I mentioned before this uncomfortable self-reflection kind of idea that, you know, often when we look at our lives, it's, it's very focused on making the things work around us. Is that you? Are you pursuing happiness and contentment there? The second false ideology that Paul points out, he says that this truth, contentment can't be achieved by self Sufficiency. Verse 12, as Paul's leading into this, in this passage, he says, The secret that I found, the secret to contentment, is found in someone beyond myself. Paul says that he can be content not because of himself or his strength or his ability or what he has done, but verse 13, he says, The secret to that contentment 
is not me, but Christ who gives me strength. In other words, hear this, the key to contentment is not by being a capable, hardworking, intelligent, wealthy, self-sufficient person. As I said before, I think Paul's writing with, with some awareness of the predominant philosophies of the day. At least it, he seems to be doing that. And the Philippians, just like us, would have been very knowledgeable about some of the ways of thinking that were at work in their world. Both the Cynics and the Stoics, two big philosophical schools, taught a philosophy of autarkeia, they called it, which is a type of contentment achieved through self-sufficiency. That basically, the answer to my happiness, I can become a happy, content, joyful, steadfast person if I can just do this inner work and achieve self-sufficiency. Basically, it's a cultivation of one's own inner resources to achieve contentment. You may have heard this before, the Stoics. What does it mean to be Stoic, right? That's somebody who's stone-faced. More or less, to make it very simple, the Stoics taught a philosophy that, that the, the key to happiness was the ability to just be stone-faced and weather the storms of life. And then in that, in that self-sufficient ability to navigate the stormy waters of this life, you would find true happiness, and Paul is speaking to ideas like that that are at work in the world. And, and that's why when he drops this kind of tease of this idea in this passage, it probably screams loudly to the Philippians because they likely expected him to give them some new idea or new method for how to change or improve or better themselves to achieve true contentment. But he does something quite differently, does he not? He says that the secret to finding contentment actually is not in yourself at all. It is through the strength and power of Jesus Christ. He wants them to see that contentment can't, buy, can't be achieved by becoming self-sufficient. Now here's why that's important for us. I'm sure you can begin to draw those lines in your own mind because this false ideology that contentment can be achieved through self-sufficiently didn't remain in the first century. And this way of thinking is pervasive in our world today. It's pervasive in our world today. The way the world trains our minds to believe that the answer for the problems is that it's within ourselves. We can be content, we can achieve that, if we can overcome the issue of ourself. So to do a little first-hand research on this, I went on Amazon.com, you heard of it? Great online store, small business, I love sports, small businesses. <laughs> and on this, on this little online bookstore, they have a list of the best-selling self-help books. This was by accident, I came across this, I guess they were like, this guy needs help. Um, so I, I see this ad pop up, or like a little banner thing. Uh, best, best self-help books of the year 2021. And I chose a couple titles off of here to share with you because I think it highlights what I'm trying to say. You ready? Becoming Bulletproof. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank. <laughs> the Power of Positive Thinking. Make Your Bed. Awaken the Giant Within. Girl, Wash Your Face. 12 rules for life, can't hurt me, the mountain is you. You see a pattern here? All of these ideas are radically self-oriented. 
They teach us that the problem to our discontentment, the problem of our unhappiness and our experience in the world is us. But guess what? You're in luck because the solution is within you also. And all you need to do is change. All you need to do is change, and then you will be happy. And the reason I draw your attention here is to show you once again that these strategies and this way of thinking that is baked into us and hardwired into our minds is that it teaches us to pursue and chase after a version or strategy of contentment that is nothing but a cheap counterfeit. And we all know this to be true without me making the argument to convince you. You know this. There is no amount of personal growth and improvement that makes you invincible to suffering. There's no amount of self-improvement and work you can do on yourself in your life to truly find contentment. That road runs out somewhere. We will always find ourselves overwhelmed and ultimately humbled by the ups and downs of life that Paul speaks about here. So again, I want to ask this check-in question. Is that you? When you experience unhappiness and problems that you're facing in your life, do you believe, hey, the mountain is me and I can do self-work to get me there? I can become this better employee. I can become this better dad, this better mom. I can become this kind of person. I can become this or that and then I will truly find contentment. When you answer that problem of how do I find happiness, does the buck stop with you? Because as Paul navigates these things, he's saying, hey, it's not, it's not in the things around you. It's not in your experience of the ups and downs. And hey, guess what? It's not in you either. It's not in your circumstances. And it's not in yourself either. He builds up to this brilliant truth that we see expressed in his words that contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. Final truth that we'll look at here. You see, the secret to contentment that Paul shares with the Philippians is wholly unlike any philosophy they'd ever heard. And I think it's a truth that we need to abide by. He says that contentment can't be found in circumstances and it can't be achieved through self-sufficiency or becoming a better version of yourself. True contentment can be experienced through Jesus alone. And here's what that looks like. In verse 13, Paul says this verse written on the mugs of Every Bible reader, he says that contentment comes from outside the self. It comes from the strength of Christ working through us. Now let me say this to dress down these two false ideologies in way of a better one. When it comes to our experience of a fallen world, I don't think that I have to work hard to convince anyone here that our circumstances are unpredictable and ever-changing. But just look at your own life, look internally at your own life over the past couple of years, and we have all the more reason to believe that there isn't hope on this side of heaven. Even for some of you personally, you're walking through or maybe just coming out of an extraordinarily difficult season. There have been jobs lost, children sick, struggles at home in your marriage with your parenting, death in your family, depression, anxiety. All of these things and more can be found right here at Christ the King Church. And I say all this to say that everyone here knows pain and suffering. And if we went around the room this morning to share our grief, we'd have a litany. And this is why this is such a hopeful idea for us. Because Jesus somehow 
offers us a way of experiencing contentment despite the ups and downs, hardships, and struggles in this life. Somehow Jesus is offering this to us. And what Paul says here is that all of this is possible not because Jesus is going to work around you and make your life easy and ease all the suffering and flatten every every hill and, and, and raise every valley in your life. He's saying not that Jesus is working around you, but the truth that he wants us to see is that you can experience contentment because Jesus is working in us to give us the strength and grace we need despite what comes our way. The answer is Jesus. Hear this truth. The gospel isn't offering us some new way or new philosophy to change ourselves and to change our world. Instead, it offers us a new way of being in the world. Because of Jesus and not because of anything that we can do in and around ourselves, our way of being in the world doesn't have to be troubled and anxious and miserable. These things belong to the way of the world and its tactics. Jesus enables in us an otherworldly contentment based on his goodness and his power and his ability and not our own. And by his spirit, he is bringing to life in us a real experience of joy and contentment that endures every season. And furthermore, because it is the strength of Christ working in us and not ourselves, that means this freeing truth is ours. We don't have to depend on ourselves to find contentment. The answer isn't within you. To find contentment, it can't be achieved by self-sufficiency. The answer is beyond yourself, which for some of us, these like hyper type A, like, hey, give me a solution. Help me find the answer to my problems. Give me step-by-step instructions on what I can do. Maybe that frustrates you. For someone that's maybe directionless and aimless on this and experiencing hardship, maybe that's freeing for you. I don't know where that lands with any of you, but all of us need to hear this, that contentment doesn't depend on ourselves. As I mentioned so often, because our experience in this life is one of difficulty and uncertainty, we look for ways to make ourselves strong, and we sometimes might even think of our faith in Christ as just another tool in our tool belt of helping us navigate the fallen world, another piece in the puzzle to helping us find happiness and contentment. But hear this, the gospel isn't fuel in the furnace of some self-building, self-justifying, self-sufficient way. It's an invitation to a whole new way. The gospel is an invitation to a whole new way. It's an invitation to lay down arms on the work within yourself to find contentment. And it's an invitation to be weak and needy before God, to depend on his strength and his power, to need his grace. It's an invitation to long for and to find contentment through the strength and power of Jesus working in us and not in ourselves. You see, the way of the world is one of strength and fortification and power, becoming some better version of yourself. The way of Christ is recognizing that you aren't anything to write home about and becoming needy and humble before God and seeking in him what you can only find in him. So how do we take these truths? That contentment can't be found in our circumstances and it can't be found in ourselves and practically walk in them. 
Basically, where does the rubber meet the road and how do we actually do this? How do we experience true contentment in Jesus? The most important thing that I would say to you is this. Contentment is a discipline. Contentment is a discipline. Contentment is a consistent, practiced virtue of seeking and depending on Christ above the world and above the self. It is a consistent, practiced virtue of seeking and depending on Christ above the world and above the self. And friends, I would say this just as just a general rule of thumb. This is what discipleship to Christ is all about. It's all about crucifying our sins and our desires for the old self, not just in the culture, but in our own bodies, in ourselves. It's not just about spotting these false ideologies and becoming a critic of it. It's examining our hearts and saying, where have I been swayed by these things? And it's about putting those things to death and turning to a better, more lasting way. It's about rejecting paradigms for happiness and contentment that come from the world and instead seeking to order our lives around the truth of what God's word actually says. Discipleship to Jesus is about cultivating and saying yes to, that means letting the spirit bring to life a new way in us. And I would say that's true of contentment also. So to land this super practically in your lap, I would say this. I would argue that to truly experience contentment in Jesus, it takes both a discipline of the mind and a discipline of the life. A discipline of the mind is needed to believe what is true against what is false. As we discussed before, there are many ideas and theories of philosophies, not in first century uh, Philippi, but at work in our lives and in our world today that promise joy, happiness, and contentment. If you don't believe me, turn on social media this afternoon and tell me that someone isn't trying to sell you some idea or some product or some way of being that promises you contentment. And the reality is that because we are sheep people, you and I are prone to the allure of anything or anyone that says that they can fulfill what we would like to have, and that is lasting joy and contentment. That means that we have to be watchful and stand on guard to not allow things like the promise of wealth, better improvement in our investing strategy, better tools to productivity, better romantic life with your spouse, or the perfect body with six-pack abs, detract us from a way of life that is actually centered on and actually leads to experiencing contentment in Jesus. Here's what I would say that this is, the discipline of our mind. It's a discipline to increase our doubt in the world and ourselves to find contentment, but to also increase our certainty that true hope, joy, and contentment can be found in Jesus alone. So how do we do that? How do we increase our doubt in the world and ourselves to truly experience contentment, and how do we also increase the certainty in Christ? And what that means is how do we decrease our, our certainty that we often have that the world and, and its promises and its paradigms actually lead to that? I think there's multiple disciplines and rhythms that you can install in your life, ways of thinking about the way that you spend your time and who you spend it with that can lead to these things. 
I think ultimately, I don't want to just give the Sunday school answer, but if your mind is not built on and informed by God's word, you will fall into every kind of false ideology. Our reading and studying of God's word is not just so that we get some butterflies in our morning that makes us not so grumpy at work. It's a way of fortifying our minds in truth, teaching us to walk in a way of flourishing that Christ invites us to. And that means not only seeing and savoring the goodness of our God and the way of life that he offers us to, that means not only enjoying the gospel and standing and walking in it, but being able to spot the phonies also. If that's not you, your guard is down. And you will be prone to all kinds of things, and as you all and I know well, will find yourself chasing something that doesn't actually lead to contentment. But this is also a rule of life, I think. If it's true that contentment can't be found in our circumstances, and we need to do the kind of things that remind us of that, I would, I would call you to a, a rule of life, a liturgy for, for your life that reminds you and helps you to reflect on that as being true. Maybe for you, that, that, that's like saying, hey, listen, every time I get online to do some online shopping, it, it makes me think that there's some happiness that can be gained from material possession. And I need to do that less. Maybe there's some hobby where you are continually chasing after a good experience, happiness or joy in the things that you're doing or the things that you can accumulate, right? Hobbies are like 90% style, 10% actually doing whatever it is. It's all about accumulating the stuff, right? The best golf clubs, but you consistently shoot a 110, right? <laughs> Maybe it's spending time with certain people that, that cause things to happen in your soul. It's not that any of these things are inherently wrong. Don't, don't get me wrong, but maybe it's spending time with certain people, watching certain things on TV, spending your time in this way versus that way that, that, that make you trust and seek and hope in the things of this world that provide contentment. And I would, I would ask you, without prescribing anything specific to you, do the kinds of things that help you know that that way is bankrupt. Order your life in such a way to know that those things are bankrupt. So I want to ask you this question that you should ask yourselves. How are these things, the things in my life, teaching me or obscuring for me that Jesus is sufficient for my contentment? That's a thing that we should ask about everything we do and every way we spend our time. But I would argue that just as much experiencing contentment requires a discipline of our lives. To not only just cultivate a certain thought life or a way of thinking, that, that's, not, that's not the only thing, but also a discipline of our life to find contentment that we seek. If it's true that contentment can't be found in ourselves or our circumstances, that means that we ought not seek them from there either. So let me ask you this question, where in your life are you chasing contentment in the things of this world? Is that work for you? Is that like, hey, if I get this better job, if I get this promotion, if I make this much money, I'll be happy? Is that work for you? Is that your family? Idolatry of the family exists. As good and wonderful and beautiful of a gift as that is, we can idolize our family and put it in the way of Christ, seek contentment in better relationships, better marriage, better situations for our kids financially, socially, and otherwise. Those things can cloud and obscure us from seeking contentment where it can only be found. Where are you chasing contentment in the things of this world? Is it being a better worker, a better student, chasing that promotion, wealth, the lake house, a nice car? Again, none of those things are inherently wrong. But ask yourself this question, are these things training you to find contentment in Jesus or leading you away from it? 
And the answer is they're leading me away from it. Again, without prescribing anything specific, I would say, don't do those things. Instead, do the things that lead you to it and remind you that there is a wellspring of joy in Christ. And this world is a puddle. The good news in all of this is this. The secret to contentment that Paul speaks about is ours in Christ. If you are a Christian in this room, the secret to contentment is yours in Christ. In Jesus, we have an immovable, unshakable source of joy and contentment in this life. A contentment that transcends circumstances and self. A contentment that is fixed on the hope of the gospel that Christ is good. God is a good father that he is with us and he is working in us and will one day make all things new. This is the goodness of the gospel because the gospel is an invitation to find what you're looking for where it can actually be found. This is the gospel for us. And so this morning, church, I, I think as we see here in this passage, I want to lay this out very specifically to you. Of the two ways before us, there is a bankrupt way of finding contentment in the world and in yourself. And there's the way of finding contentment that actually works. There's a way and in someone where you can find contentment that your soul belongs for. And of these two ways, which will you choose? Which will you index your life into? Which will be the thing that gets your money and time and attention? Which will you seek and which will you pursue? And there's one answer, and the answer is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a fixed joy and fixed hope in Christ, that we can have a contentment that is outside of this world. And Father, we know that all creation, your word says, is groaning. Father, we've experienced fallenness, that there is a desire we recognize and see, that there is there's brokenness and disunity and discord in our world. And Father, our experience of that often leads us to anxiousness. It depresses us. But Father, it also gives us the allure somehow that we can find hope and joy in these things. Father, help our weak and frail minds to see this is nonsense. This isn't true. There's nothing here. Father, we can experience over, over, over and over again that lasting joy and lasting contentment can't be found in our circumstances, can't be found in ourselves. But Father, like a dog returns to its vomit, we do it again and again and again. Father, disrupt our minds and disrupt our lives with a vision for beauty, with a vision for your goodness, with a vision for lasting joy and contentment that would cause us to, to, to sell the field or to buy the field to find the treasure. Because, Father, we know that that treasure is you. Father, you give us strength by your power and by your spirit, bringing to life in us something that is beyond ourselves, the ability to weather storms, the ability to see and celebrate on the mountaintops. Father, you offer us the key and secret to contentment. Father, help us train our hearts, train our souls Correct us where necessary to seek contentment where it may be found because this is the good and perfect gift of you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.